Hello, everyone, and welcome to my podcast, Body Justice. I started this podcast because I believe that all bodies are good bodies. All bodies are deserving, worthy, and all bodies are whole, just as they are. In today's world, it's ever hard to embody this as our truth. My mission is to create a space to process body image, eating disorders, and relationships through a justice-oriented lens. I'm a licensed therapist in California and an eating disorder survivor myself. I know what it's like to be at war with myself and also to find peace again. Thank you for being here and I look forward to being your host. Hey everyone, welcome to Body Justice. Today, we're going to talk about the power of peer support and alternative paths to recovery with Akira Gilbert from Body Reborn. This is a peer support collective um, that is designed to help folks, BIPOC folks in particular, who need additional support and recovery um, from people who have been through it. This is really, really powerful. And Body Reborn is 100% free. This is like just foundational having peer support and recovery have being able to talk to people who have been through it and know what you're going through is amazing and the fact that body reborn is a free resource to bipoc people just makes my heart so happy you know the whole reason of this body justice podcast is to give free educational tools and information about eating disorder recovery for people that can't access care Um, Or, you know, maybe you can, but you just need a little extra tools and insights between sessions. We all do. So, you know, I just think the mission of Body Reborn and Body Justice Podcast are so in line. So super excited for you all to meet Akira today and for us to dive into this. Now, I want to say a little bit about alternative paths to recovery. As a therapist, right, we are trained to push kind of this gold standard model of care onto clients. Um, The problem with that, though, is that not everyone can access it and not everyone actually benefits from it. Gold standards of care are largely shaped by white supremacy and capitalism, meaning the way that they got um, kind of credentialed or became evidence-based largely isn't due to who has funding, um, who they did their studies on, right? A lot of times it's like, you know, a group of 100 or 2,000 college-age students um, who happen to be white, you know? Like, if you go through studies, you will see so much of that. Um, And you really have to get critical about who's making these studies and what populations they are normed on and designed for. And a lot of times, people of color and transgender non-conforming people are left out of that. Um, And so I love talking about these alternative paths because I think sometimes the message about this gold standard of care can feel so hopeless to people who can't or will not access it. So I've also have personal friends in my life who have recovered with these alternative paths. So I just want to give everyone out there hope that even if your recovery looks different from the quote unquote gold standard, it does not mean you're necessarily doing it wrong or that it's not going to, you know, be helpful for you. That's just all a bunch of bullshit. So while I love therapy, obviously, I want you to know there are other ways. So let's get into it. Let's talk to Akira about the power of peer support. (music) 
tell us a little bit about you, how you identify, and what you're passionate about. Yeah, so my name is Akira. I use she, her pronouns. Um, I am pansexual, I am Black, and really I just enjoy being able to build support systems for folks. Um, what I'm passionate about really is social justice. And I remember when I first said that as a kid, and I don't think I used the term social justice, I said, I wanna do good in the world. <laughs> like, okay, mm, that's cute, but money. And I said, yeah, 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 that. But helping people. Um, nice. And so uh, a bit to their dismay, uh, that hasn't particularly changed. Mm -hmm. um, but with that being said, I, I just really enjoy being in community with folks. And I'm really fortunate that I have the opportunity to do that every day now. Yeah, that's incredible. So just kind of this natural um, inclination, it sounds like, to want to help and be in community, like be with people. Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, we spend a lot of time at work. Yeah. Um, and one of the things that I struggled with when I was first looking at different career paths and things like that was that I was very fortunate and I felt like I had a lot of opportunities open to me. But what that also meant was that um, I had the option. I was like, all right, if I'm not uh, passionate or I don't enjoy much else other than you know uh, uh getting this high from being in community with folks mm -hmm. can i really dedicate that many hours a week for the rest of my life doing it um and for me the answer was no um but again i was very privileged to be able to make that decision yes oh my gosh i Feel like we're so aligned in that way like i am not motivated to do anything unless i'm passionate about it and, yeah. <laughs> and like, if I'm not working with people, I just don't, yeah, I just thrive in, in, in helping people too, just like what you said. And I think a lot of people have benefited from you thriving and helping them. Yeah, you too. Um, this is a total side note, Akira, but what is your horoscope sign? I'm just curious. <laughs> um, which one? Um, your sun and your moon. Um, my sun is Scorpio. Okay. Um, and my moon, I think, is Pisces. Oh, okay. Cool. Um, uh, what are you? I will admit, I don't know much about astrology, but my cousin is very into it. And so they <laughs> told me this. And I was like, I know the big three. And that's about the extent of it. Um, but what are yours? I am a Sagittarius sun and a Capricorn moon. Um, the reason I asked is because a lot of Sagittarius are like, helpers and things like that so I was like oh maybe she's a Sag too oh no I just missed it <laughs> that's true we're right next to each other it's true um so tell us a little bit about Body Reborn and what inspired you to start such a wonderful organization yeah so Body Reborn is a nonprofit collective that supports BIPOC folks who struggle with food and body image um, we run a community space called the Healing Collaborative, and that starts off as an eight-week program with a small group of other BIPOC folks. And during your time in the community space, we provide everyone with access to a peer mentor. And when the eight weeks are done, you're brought into our virtual community space, and your relationship with your mentor continues forever. So it lasts however long you would like it to. Um, really, at the end of the day, our community is designed to support food and body healing that is consistent, practical, and free. Um, coming back to what I was sharing before about 
enjoying the experience of being in community of, of folks. One thing that I noticed when I was recovering from an eating disorder was that I was sorely missing that community piece, but more so than that, there were support groups available, but none of them um, really spoke to the experiences that I was having mm -hmm. as a, at the time, um, younger black woman, as somebody who was struggling with their sexuality to understand what their sexuality was. Um, and a lot of the groups that I found, either one, didn't address other identities at all, mm -hmm. and, or two, actively minimized it and tried to force a narrative of uh, both my eating disorder and healing that weren't reflective of my experience. Mm -hmm. Oh, I can relate to that so much. I mean, number one, I totally agree that like community and peer support is key to recovery. Like we need other people to do this really hard work of recovery and to be able to talk to other people really going through it and sharing similar identities is so powerful. Um, I mean, peer support back when I started recovery was how I started, but like what you're saying, the groups that I found myself in were not reflected. Like the narrative was not reflective of my experience. And I felt very, I don't know the right word, but just kind of ick. <laughs> like <laughs> they made, like I went to like, um, and I know it's helpful for some people, but I think I started out going to eating disorders, anonymous groups. Mm -hmm. And you have to say basically like, my name's Allison and I'm a anorexic. And I just like hate yeah. that language. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, there's so much more to people. There's so much more to people. And I definitely adopted that mentality for a long time of like, oh, if I'm only going to be a binge eater, if I'm only going to be an anorexic, if I'm only going to be a person with the eating disorder, then I might as well lean into it. Yeah. Right? If that's always going to be my identity, then why bother? to change, yes. even if it's causing me distress. Um, and one of the hard things that I experienced, and uh, you and I have chatted a bit about this before, but I was a child when I was first told that my body was disgusting and bad. Mm. And, you know, shortly after that was when the abuse started, but it was around that time that I realized that even though I had very little control over anything else in my life, you know, food was the one thing that I had more ownership of and I could use it as a tool. Mm -hmm. And so if I felt like I was a bad person or if I was shame worthy, I would restrict and I didn't think I deserved food. But if I felt happy or, you know, just broke down from not eating enough before I would binge and then the cycle would start again. Mm -hmm. And I think the fact that the fact that I am a black person um, didn't play a role in any and anyone who was trying to help me at the time, it didn't register in their mind that that would impact my experience of having an eating disorder. Um, because at that time, I really craved for someone to see me as worthy, you know, even though I viewed the core parts of my identity, um, you know, my fatness, my blackness as worthless. And so I thought I needed to make myself as small as possible and I needed to make myself fit neatly into other people's lives. So you know, maybe they'd let me stay. Um, and again, a huge part of that was my identity as a Black person. So not only being told that, yes, your body size um, is something that you should be hyper aware of, but also the fact that you are Black and there is not only a certain stigma attached with being Black, but it is directly going to affect the way that you move through the world and you're going to be limited to this realm. 
Mm -hmm. And doing so, I was like, all right, well, I'm trying to align with, you know, my white peers in these ED support groups because that's the only model I have. And these are the only other people that are coming to these. Mm -hmm. Um, And I tried to get better because the most distressing part about my eating disorder for me um, was the constant thoughts about food, you know, and as you know, it can take a really long time. Um, It took a long time for me to get to the place where I admitted I had an eating disorder because I always thought that folks of color don't get eating disorders. That is not, that is not a thing. Um, And then it took even longer to get to the place where I wanted to get better. And then when I tried, nothing worked. I read every book, I tried support groups, didn't get therapy, couldn't afford it. Um, didn't tell family and friends because they did not understand and or actively discouraged me from trying to get better. Um, and then I realized that the solutions I had tried hadn't worked because they were never designed for people like me in mind. They were never designed for um, folks who weren't white. Um, and body image was just the form that my issues were expressed. They weren't the root cause. Mm-hmm. And so as I was saying before, you and I have spoken about this, of how our identity as for you as a mixed race person or for me as a black person have impacted our journeys and our relationships with food. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think all too often people want to stray toward the narrative of people are people. And you know we just need to make um, a solution that's great for everyone. But <laughs> one of the key parts about eating disorders is that there is no, you know, excuse the pun, one size fits all solution. Right. Uh, And the more we're willing to accept that, the more I'm willing to acknowledge, like I'm not going to have the answer to every single thing. Um, Mm -hmm. And just because this worked for me doesn't mean it's going to work for somebody else. Just because I've seen dozens of people go through this process doesn't mean that that process is going to work for somebody else. And being willing to admit um, the potential for backtrack and relapse and you know trial and error yes would have helped me (laughs) if I had known that that was okay right oh my gosh thank you so much for sharing your story in that way it's so powerful and yeah like we've talked about like I can relate so much to that um I forget Akira did you grow up in a in a like white predominantly white town or white area or did you grow up around more diversity? Um, I grew up in a diverse town in a predominantly white county. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the um, the town I grew up in was pretty diverse, but it was also extremely segregated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so especially, and this is a, a facet of almost all schools within the public school system. Um, once you get to a certain level, you know, they start tracking you onto the honors track or non-honors yes. track, like that. And those are racialized as well. Totally. Um, and so, and I wonder if I had grown up in a predominantly white town, how that would have impacted my experience, because all I'm aware of is that um, my home life was perhaps more um impactful around it Mm -hmm. yeah it's so interesting right like even even though you grew up around some diversity there was still this kind of 
segregation and message that like one one side was better than the other. Um, yeah, because I think I told you, but I grew up in a super white area and a lot of my eating disorder and body image had to do with like wanting to conform as much as possible and just hide my mm-hmm. true identity um, because I was, you know, it was never... Well, I guess there was explicit messaging, but there was a lot of implicit messaging around like the body ideals, right? And it was so much more than thinness. It was skin and, you know, all these things. So yeah, yeah, I am so glad you're doing this work because this is what you're offering at Body Reborn is so needed in the recovery space. Um, And I wish it was more like widespread. I wish that was like the norm you know? I do as well. And um, I've worked in the social impact space and uh, also nonprofits as well for a little while. And what I'm against is people, you know, just um, building nonprofits for, for the sake of building nonprofits, as opposed to, you know, looking at other organizations that are doing similar work. Um, and so I think one of the positives and what I try to ask myself before starting Body Reborn is, is there something unique that I believe that I can contribute to this space? Mm-hmm. Um, I had been a mentor and a supporter in some groups, they're called sponsors, uh, for folks with um, eating who are trying to heal their relationships with food for a while. And the same issues kept coming up year over year over year. And in the back of my mind, I was like, well, someone's gonna, <laughs> someone's gonna fix this. Someone's gonna create a solution to this because there's no way that this many years down the road from when I first started experiencing these issues that it's still just as prevalent. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are working on it and they're doing amazing work. Um, but there are also many more that aren't um, mm-hmm. and that haven't acknowledged intersectionality. Right, and that haven't kind of, caught up or evolved their practice. I see that a lot with kind of eating disorder providers um, and professionals that have been in the field for a really long time. It's like they haven't evolved at all. (laughs) So it reflects in in their work and their messaging, you know, Um, and it's problematic. It's harmful. Extremely so. Yeah. what do you think it is about peer support, the power of peer support? And, and I guess specifically like seeing peers like yourself, like how do you feel like this is transformational and eating disorder recovery? Yeah, so I like to say it like this. Um, I want you to think about the roughest time in your life that you've ever gone through. And maybe the first person you called or wanted there to support you was your doctor or your therapist. But for many folks, it's someone they love and they trust, or at least they want it to be somebody they love and they trust and someone who can relate to their experience in that moment, you know, to validate, to empathize and help them move forward. Mm-hmm. I think that's the power of peer support. You know, when you're going through something, especially something like an eating disorder, which tends to be, you know, very long process um, and is so deeply intertwined with your sense of self um, and which perhaps very few people in your life can relate to. You have a network of people there who want to support you, who you can also contribute to. And so to be in a community, you need to be willing to actively give and take and to feel like you're both giving and supporting others just as much as you've been supported, I think is really powerful. Um, For peer support to work, 
there's really two components to it in my mind. It's really community and time. Mm -hmm. uh, and so the community aspect is powerful. You know, the ability to hear from multiple people at once and connect their experiences to yours and then give back to them. That's one of the aspects that is typically missing in traditional recovery settings, right? Um, you know, like, I have a transactional relationship with my therapist. I'm giving them money, but that's not necessarily me feeling like I'm contributing to their experience. And, mm. um, and then the second aspect that I mentioned is time, right? We're human, we need time to build bonds, but we also wanna know that those bonds won't just go away when our resources tap out. Mm -hmm. And so if I stop paying my therapist or my doctor, I'm not gonna see them again, or I like yeah. to see them again because and that's not any shade of therapists or doctors, of course, they need the income in order to be able to serve me. Mm -hmm. But with your support, my investment in you as my peer, that's my currency. Mm -hmm. And so that makes it easier for that relationship to be long lasting, even if my ability in that moment to give to you dwindles because I'm overwhelmed. Mm -hmm. So powerful for like attachment healing too. Um, yeah to have kind of that safety net. And I love that. I think that's one of the things about, you know, I'm a therapist, obviously, but um, some of the limitations I really struggle with because yeah. I, I feel like so much more is needed for someone to really heal. And um, I think, you know, obviously capitalism has influenced and shaped how we can do that as therapists, but um, I love that peer support, you know, and that you're doing body reborn as an option for people too. Cause I think it's like, we need all of it. We need peer support. If we have access to therapy, that's wonderful. Yeah. Um, it's like a both and thing. Exactly. It's never, or rather it isn't an either or unless you mm -hmm. either a, want it to be and or B, you have no other option at the time. Right. Exactly. Um, and I've never, this is something I'm so excited to talk with you about because for some reason it feels so taboo to talk about in space, like quote unquote, professional eating disorder provider spaces. <laughs> and I say that in quotes because obviously professionalism is very much steeped in white supremacy and other harmful structures, but, um, I've never liked the black and white mentality in the recovery community when it comes to like the gold standard care, you know, it's like, there's people that will say, if you don't have a therapist, dietitian, doctor, psychiatrist, I cannot work mm -hmm. with you, you know? And, and then like really pushing these evidence-based practices that are also extremely problematic and do not work for everyone. Um, because that's the quote unquote gold standard. I think it is so harmful because it doesn't look at the nuance. It doesn't look at different factors that bring folks into recovery. It doesn't allow for various identities um, and it's not individualized. And it's also extremely harmful for people with financial barriers because that is a wild amount of money. Yeah. <laughs> um, even if you have insurance and are lucky enough to find providers in your insurance plan, you know, there's so much out of network cost. And I don't know, it just creates a really hopeless message about recovery, I think. And I personally know people in my life who have not had the gold standard path to recovery um, and have still been able to find a place of stable recovery. So 
I just think that's so important to talk about. And I love that you bring that to light and make space for alternative routes. Yeah. And, you know, the Western model of medicine promotes this idea that only someone who has a particular license can contribute to your recovery, whether it's physical or mental, in a meaningful way. And I think that's very dangerous. Um, but when I say that, please let me be clear, like therapists, clinicians, people who have trained, studied, um, and know, uh, you know, what the current, uh, quote unquote, best practices are, they're still needed. They're mm-hmm. needed. But when we promote that as the only solution to someone's healing, we run into issues, especially mm-hmm. when, as you mentioned, all of these things are coming out of white supremacist frameworks, capitalist frameworks, patriarchal frameworks, transphobic frameworks. And, you know, sometimes I'll speak with folks and I'll be like, oh, Kira, here you go again with that social justice nonsense. <laughs> and I, I say, well, I wouldn't bring it up if I didn't feel like it was true. And you don't have to, you know, like I, I do, but you as an individual do not have to go through your day observing everything through the lens of like, how did white supremacy impact this? However, there is something to be said for understanding. For example, coming back to gold standards of treatment in physical medical care and mental health care. Who were the people who, you know, were originally given medicine and diagnoses? Like yes. who were the framework for these actual conditions based on? Mm-hmm. And who had the funding to do, you know, go through the scientific process to get their study about their theory like published you know like it's so it's so problematic (laughs) exactly and one of the um one of the larger issues I have is that we treat eating disorders as very individualized um also you know very vain you know the the narrative of an eating disorder is a cis thin white woman Mm -hmm. um, who just quote unquote, just developed eating disorder because um, she didn't like her body. That narrative still prevails and it's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous to the folks who don't fit that mold, but also the folks who say, wow, this mental health issue that I'm struggling with, it's just a matter of me not being strong enough. It's just a matter of me being vain. Mm-hmm. My and, gosh. and, you know, to go through, and so one of the things that we uh, focus on in the Healing Collaborative, uh, which is one of our programs within Body Reborn, is how each of these um, larger scale uh, systems of oppression impact the spectrum, because it's not just people with eating disorders or people without. The spectrum of eating is really a spectrum, you know, so if you have quote unquote normal eating on one end um, and eating disorders on the other, there's a whole range in between. Um, but the fact that I would speak to people who say, you know, I've been struggling with my relationship with food for so, so long. And it never occurred to me how my drive for productivity or perfectionism, because I've been told that that's the only thing that should be valued. And that's the only thing that I have to contribute to the society mm-hmm. may have impacted my relationship with food. Yes. It didn't occur to me how because I strive for perfectionism in every other area of my life and I've set up systems in place to make sure that I can achieve it, that my relationship with food might follow a similar pattern. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, all of these things, um, I I love my therapist. Mm -hmm. I think they are fantastic. Um, 
they are also incredibly mindful. And that's something that, you know, not everyone's ready to enter into um, conversations or wants to enter into conversations about systemic oppression on a regular basis, especially marginalized folks who have to deal with it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a part about making spaces, especially a community space successful is making those conversations accessible too. Mm -hmm. So if we want to delve deeper into this, we can, but like here, here's a high to medium level understanding of how these things can impact your relationship with food, especially as a person of color, especially as um, a lot of folks who are in our community spaces are trans or non-binary. Um, and again, an entire different set of identities that don't fit the narrative that we've been told mm -hmm. um, of a person who has an eating disorder. Absolutely. I mean, that reminds me of something that I always struggled with in recovery was, you know, some of the cliche recovery mottos <laughs> can be really cheesy, right? But yeah. one of them really never sat well with me. And it was the one that's like, your body is the least interesting or important thing about you. And mm -hmm. while I think that's like a good intended sentiment, that is not the experience for people of color or transgender non-conforming folks like when we have to go into the world and we're told the exact opposite like if we were to just regard our bodies as not interesting well that puts us up for like safety concerns and um, violence and it's just it's just not true for the society we live in it's also not true for people in larger bodies like yeah and it's, it's funny because, you know, when I speak with folks, I'm like, I, I would be sitting here and lying if I said that our body size does not impact the way that we are treated. Right. Right. Not acknowledging fat phobia within eating disorder care um, or even just disordered eating care in general. I think is incredibly harmful, right? Like, well, you know, you should just want to feel good about yourself and motivation comes from within. Yes, sure. Yeah. <laughs> but, but that takes away from the idea that we are social creatures, that we're human beings and that, um, this is going to be a strange analogy, but please bear with me for just like 30 seconds. <laughs> um, it's the frustration I have when folks will say, um, oh, you know, well, it's your fault that you, you're poor or you don't have money because mm -hmm. uh, if you just didn't buy Starbucks, you know, every other day, oh God, yeah. if you shopped at different places, um, you know, you would have more money and this is a personal failing. Mm -hmm. And I find that interesting because it's that same person who earns below the poverty line in a high cost of living city. Mm -hmm. You can't out budget your way out of not making enough. Mm -hmm. And I think similarly, um, we cannot act like different identities being treated differently and systems of oppression being a key force in many of our lives, that that is completely independent from our healing of our eating disorder. Mm -hmm. 100%. Yes. And I see that 
play out all the time in my work with clients, how like our food, our relationship to food and body mirrors so much like what we're being conditioned in these systems, you know, from capitalism, from racism, from fat phobia, all of it, like a hundred percent impacts our relationship to our body when we're told that bodies like ours, or, you know, maybe even our own body has been harmed. It's really hard to embody the narrative that your body's the least important thing about you or interesting thing about you. Um, I, oh, sorry. Uh, no, no, oh, no. I was just going to say, like, when I was told that I was, my first thought was like, I wish that was true, mm-hmm. but that is just like, not true. That's not true to my experience. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I wish, yeah, I, I just wish there were more folks like you who made space for that. Like you now in, in your position that you have to help people. Yeah. Thanks for saying that. And same to you. Um, <laughs> we need more Akira's and Allison out there. <laughs> um, when I think about, um, and this is another thing um, regarding system of oppression, and we've alluded to it in the conversation around capitalism, but also nothing grinds my, well, actually there are quite a few things that grind my game. <laughs> I hate that expression too. Hate it's such a strange one, right? <laughs> um, but when we try to continually convince folks that, as you said, the only way to heal is to get a dietitian, a therapist and things like that, and a whole treatment team that's going to cost a ton of money. But even a step down from that, saying um, that you need to, you know, for some people, they are prescribed a diet plan mm-hmm. or a food plan, rather. Um, you're assuming that I can afford the foods that you're putting, mm-hmm. right? Like many, many of the folks that we work with live, live in food deserts. Yes. You know, or are on um, SNAP benefits. And it's like, listen, I get what I receive. Mm-hmm. how can I make my healing work within that context because if it doesn't work within that context now you're just giving me layman's advice and that's not helpful to me mm-hmm. absolutely I mean the whole intuitive eating lens as wonderful as I think it can be for a lot of folks it takes so much privilege to be an intuitive eater to have access to just you know eat whatever feels and sounds good and then discard what you don't want. Like that's, that is not the reality for so many people. Mm-hmm. It also, um, and I think some people uh, explain and work with intuitive eating really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, like the common platitudes, so you'll see like post on an Instagram caption, like just listen to your body's hunger and fullness signals. If you if you have an eating disorder, like you don't have those right. anymore. And so it's like, okay, cool. But like, how do I go about getting those back? And if you're telling me that in order to start recovery, I should just intuitively eat, then I'm going to inherently believe that my current body's hunger and fullness signals, which yes. are off, are right. <laughs> which yep. is only going to propel me further. Um, totally so but that's again like that's not um the fault of any one individual that's more so like you know the age we are in of how can we capture Mm -hmm. people in you know 
the smallest amount of information like a social media headline because it's hard it is and that's yeah you're right it's such a I think social media just inherently has more of like a binary um projection with it because you can't you can't capture all the nuance um but yeah that's a interesting topic um tell us a little bit about contextualized healing and why it's important to acknowledge I mean we touched on this a little bit but what do you think it does for people's recovery when you start kind of educating and bringing awareness to systems of oppression when it comes to healing our relationship with food and body yeah, um, social structures and system of oppression in large part define who we are. They create a framework for how we're able to move through the world based on the different identities that we hold. And so um, I don't know if you've seen the spheres of acceptability or the idea around that. Oh, sorry, can you repeat that, Akira? A really loud truck just drove by. <laughs> no, you're completely fine. Um, have you heard of um, the spheres of acceptability? No, I haven't. Um, so if you can imagine, I'm going to say concentric circles, but I don't think I mean concentric circles, but circles like a small circle and then there's a larger circle on the outside and there's a larger circle on the outside, like kind of like a dartboard. Mm. Um, and so the idea of the spheres of acceptability is that each sphere holds a certain layer of um, level of identity um, and the different identities you hold either can move you closer to the center of privilege and acceptability or further to the outskirts into the margins further away mm -hmm. um, fear of acceptability and so if I am just like a dot within these circles um, you know if I am cisgender I might move closer to the sphere of acceptability but if I'm black I might move further away mm -hmm. and then if I'm poor I might move further away but if I have had access to higher education and went like I'll move closer and so it's all of these uh intersections of our identity and like where they position us in society um and coming back to your question around why is contextualized healing important I can't tell you how many times we've interacted with folks who said oh my goodness if I knew when these issues with food first cropped up that it wasn't inherently just my fault <laughs> like yeah. it wasn't inherently my fault right um if i was able to get some context understand other people who held my identities who had been here before understood the systems that are in place that likely pushed me or at least informed my experience to get to this point mm -hmm. then i would have perhaps been able to accept that more quickly and then have an understanding of, okay, maybe the way I've tried to go about healing hasn't been the right way for me. And so with all of this newfound knowledge, how do I move forward? Um, and so I think that's the key for contextualized healing is do I, and, it, and it's very similar to, um, for example, kids in schools. Many, many, many research studies have shown that kids who have teachers that reflect their, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, physical outward facing identities are more likely to do well, right? If they see themselves represented in the classroom and in the teaching instruction, same thing here. If you see yourself represented, if you feel like there are, um, there are acknowledgements to your experience that are more than just a checkbox, like, oh yeah, we covered that part. Now we're gonna move on and you know focus mm -hmm. on the 
things of why you're messing up and how you can change because you have the most power. Um, it's, it's, I've found it to be um, helpful. With the totally. I agree with all of that. Yeah. So I guess I have heard of the spheres of acceptability. It's like the privilege wheel, right? Like, correct. Yeah. Um, and it, it seems like there's like a layer to like acknowledging desirability politics, politics too. Um, like what makes someone desirable and accepted in society and yeah, we definitely have to look at those intersections. Um, I think for me too, and this is something I see with my clients a lot is that people who have eating disorders, um, a lot of them tend to be really empathetic, really want to do good in the world, um, really care about the well-being of each other and society. And so when you start bringing up how eating disorders are so much influenced by these systems, I feel like it gives, number one, it kind of starts to dismantle the shame that can come with having an eating disorder, but also kind of lights a fire to people's recovery um, yeah. because it tends to be so values incongruent for the person um, that then your why for recovery becomes stronger because it's like, exactly. okay, if I'm doing this work, I'm also like divesting from these harmful systems. And, you know, I think that's so powerful. 100%. So if you can... I will also say, I don't think you've ever said something that I disagree with, which is. Oh, <laughs> I agree. The same for you. I'm loving this conversation so much. Um, if you could give advice to someone who is just starting out in recovery and they can't afford therapy or dietitian or even maybe a doctor, like, what would you say? Mm. a few things, but I'll try to contain them. Um, <laughs> I would say first, don't overlook the value of harm reduction. Mm -hmm. um, I think, or from what I've seen, we often try to push the narrative of there is one mode of recovery and that is it. Um, and that's great. And that may work for some people, right? It may um, make them feel like, that, that may increase their sense of why, mm -hmm. right? With that being said, if they do backtrack, if they do relapse, if they do um, encounter some of these shame struggles again that cause them to engage in food or body or um, um, thought behaviors that are really challenging and harmful to their recovery, now they don't have any other resources to try to backtrack that, right? It may be very binary, very all or nothing. Um, and so I would say, first off, don't overlook the value of harm reduction, especially because harm reduction techniques tend to be a bit more accessible mm -hmm. um, than, uh, you know, therapy and dietitian services. I'd also say um, the perfect recovery doesn't exist. <laughs> it's mm -hmm. impossible, and even so, there will be lapses. One of the hardest things in my experience and of those folks that I've gotten to know is after your food behaviors have changed, uh, changing the thoughts that come with it. And it doesn't always occur in that sequence, of course. Um, but just acknowledging that, like, okay, this isn't going to look um, necessarily the way that I want it to look, if I even want it to look this way, because maybe there's a part of me that doesn't really want to um, 
recovered. Mm-hmm. And I would also say, think about prioritization. Um, we can't always focus on every single thing at once. And one of the things I wish I had done um, when seeking out resources or places to heal was I wish that I had, you know, found a staple in my own life. So, you know, a person or a thing that increased my sense of why for recovery um, and then used that to find, um, you know, local support groups and things like that. Because if I had done that, if I had found my sense of why, that would have helped me identify, okay, when I'm going into these spaces and trying to recover, um, whether I'm going to local support groups. And now obviously with COVID, um, virtual resources are much more accessible. So I would definitely promote those as well. Um, If I had found, if I had realized which part of my identity do I need to be acknowledged and continually supported in these spaces, right? So outside of being a person who is struggling with an eating disorder, what are the parts of my identity that I feel most closely attached to that need to be valued in this space? Mm-hmm. Because if I had known that, I could have cut off a lot of the resources that didn't work for me mm-hmm. earlier on. Um, and it wouldn't have, and actually, I don't know, right? Hindsight's twenty twenty. Maybe the process would have been just as long. Maybe it would have been a little bit shorter. Maybe it would have been less pain. Maybe it would have been more. I can't say, um, but I think if nothing else, it would have increased my um, sense of, yes, I can do this, like feeling good about myself and not hyper-focusing on food, hyper-focusing on my body, feeling like that's the only aspect of my life that I can control, feeling like that's the only aspect of myself that makes me worthy if I do it, quote unquote, well, mm-hmm. would have saved, would have promoted my sense of like, yes, I can reach quote unquote recovery. Totally. It's almost like we should be giving disclaimers when people start recovery, like, hey, recovery is possible and it is a long and painful process. And there's going to be so many ups and downs. Um, Because yeah, I think so many people carry so much shame when they're like, why can't I just do this? Like, why can't I just eat normally? But it's, as we know, it's so much more um, than food and body, so much more. Um, but and, yeah. <laughs> and on that note, um, I was, I was having a conversation with my friend recently and they said something to the effect of, does it tire you out? Um, you know, always speaking about food and body and, you know, you're running Body Reborn. And as I mentioned before, a part of our program is mentor, peer mentorship. And so um, I have a few folks uh, that I'm supporting with, you know, as a peer myself. And I said, well, some of our conversations, actually a decent number of our one-on-one conversations don't specifically revolve around food. Mm-hmm. They revolve around all the things that are adjacent to food that inform yes. their with food and body. And also, if somebody is in a mode of crisis, food may not be the thing at the top of their list. They're like, listen, I'm experiencing a lot of crises mm-hmm. and that is, food is not something that it, it is top of mind, but it may not be something that I have the space to process and work on right now. Right. But, um, 
and as you said, coming back to contextualized healing, contextualized healing isn't just about um, different forms of oppression. It's also about understanding what are other areas of your life that either support some of uh, the behaviors that have developed because of your eating disorder, um, the what you think is quote unquote good or right um, or that you should do. And so I said, I don't really get tired because, well, that's not true. I'm a person, I get tired. Um, <laughs> but I said, the conversations I have are not tiring because they're varied, right? Mm -hmm. I, I The conversations I have with each person are very dependent on what, not even just what I feel they need, what they, what they also are able to express that they need in addition to me building a relationship with them and understanding like, okay, knowing what I know about you, how, how can I point you in the right direction of additional resources that you may need? Mm -hmm. Things like that. I agree with that. Yeah. Like my conversations with clients too, like, yes, we talk about food and body stuff, but everyone has a unique story of how, how this came to be. And so, yeah, we are talking about relationships. We're talking about trauma. We're talking about systemic issues, like whatever is relevant for that person. But I agree. It definitely doesn't get boring. Like, sure. I can get tired after a long day, but, but it doesn't, I don't get tired of the work. Exactly. Um, that's wonderful. So when you hear the term body justice, what does that mean to you? And I know that's a really loaded question, but I love getting everyone's, um, just kind of unique definition of it. Yeah. I mean, when I think of body justice, I think of a movement that encompasses, you know, there we started off on this, you know, uh, body positivity trend and, and that's great. <laughs> um, but I view body justice as something that acknowledges that um, all bodies are worthy of acceptance, desirable. Um, that includes uh, folks who um, exist in the realm of, you know, fat liberation and fat activism, things like that. Um, but I also think that body justice refers to serving individual bodies and our collective bodies by acknowledging like, hey, there are systems in place that harm some of us. Mm -hmm. And so how do I perpetuate that harm intentionally or unintentionally? So if I'm participating in body justice, I'm looking to see how can I both serve myself and my other community members to uplift them in the body that they are currently in while also acknowledging how my actions intentional or otherwise may harm them. Yeah. I'm doing my best to change it. A hundred percent. I love that. It's such a, a big question. I think it encompasses so much. Um, I think I always just think about like envisioning a world where there is no body hierarchy, you know, where we can just exist. Um, with respect and care and mutual respect and care, but just like dismantling this idea that some bodies are better than others, you know? Yeah. Um, and that encompasses abolition and transformative justice and all the justice movements really, because they're all affecting our bodies. 
Yeah. Um, thank you for sharing that. Why I love asking all my guests because I think it is something that is a collective, ever evolving movement, you know, and it's not, it's a hundred percent, not just mine. Um, and so, yeah, I think I, I love hearing from every guest, like, what does it mean to you? Because I think we're all defining that. Exactly. Yeah. And our definitions are changing. Exactly. They evolve, they grow, and we continue to, I love what you said about like acknowledging the ways that we do harm too, because yeah, we're all, we're constantly learning and unlearning. Um, And that's, we need to acknowledge that. Like we are all embedded in this really (laughs) fucked up world. (laughs) So of course we have our own biases and projections and the quicker we can like understand that and take accountability for that, the more justice for everyone. Yeah. So yeah. We're doing what we can. <laughs> yep, we are. And that and it get, it can feel like overwhelming at times too. Cause it's like, oh my gosh, there's so much. But I think knowing that like we each have our unique path and gift in this work and we're not meant to do it all, you know. Exactly. Um, so really coming back to that community, it's a community movement. Um, so Akira, where can listeners find you and find more info about Body Reborn? Yeah, uh, you can find more information on either our website at www.bodyreborn.org um, or our Instagram is Body Reborn. And yeah, we have our um, next cohort for the Healing Collaborative starting shortly um, in May. So if anybody's interested, um, they can go on Instagram um, and that'll proceed to a link to get more information about it or to the website. Awesome. Thank you so much. I hope everyone goes and follows Body Reborn and hears all about your wonderful, wonderful services. Of course. And thank you so much, Allison. I meant it before when I said that there are very few people who can continue to do this type of work. Um, It's really hard. And I just continue to look to you as a source, you know, inspiration. Oh, thank you so much. I feel the same. The feelings are mutual. Um, so glad we had this conversation and so excited to continue collaborating with you. Of course. All right. I hope you have a wonderful day. You too. Thank you so much.